Welcome back to another episode of Failing Forward. I'm your host, Steve Hofstetter. As always, if you enjoy the show, like, comment, subscribe, review, do all the stuff that you do to make sure the art that you enjoy is listened to by other people. And I have an expert on listening here with me today. Now, before I introduce my guest, and I'm going to do something a little different than I do normally, because this is a different episode than normal. So if you've been listening to the podcast, you understand that this show is motivational. This show is about better understanding who you are and understanding that a failure does not mean you're a failure. It just means that there's a lesson to learn. And so I was talking to a dear friend of mine about the show who, and she's going to come on and be a guest at some point. Um, but she said, you need to get Mark Olson on this show. So I have. So let me tell everybody, I'm. this is too much for me to remember. That's how great your bio is. And tell me if this is even outdated, if you've done more stuff. So Mark Goulston is a psychiatrist consultant to major organizations. His book, Just Listen, ranked number one in six Amazon categories, has been translated into 14 languages, reached number one in Munich and Shanghai, became the basis of a 2010 PBS special. Consumers Research Council three times named him one of America's top psychiatrists, including 2011. For over 20 years, he has been clinical assistant professor of medicine at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute. Goulston has appeared on Oprah, The Today Show, The Phil Donahue Show, CNN. And there's another like page on this because you've done a lot of stuff. And the reason I wanted to go through that and make sure I didn't miss anything is because I want our listeners, our viewers to understand the breadth of what it is that you do. That all said, forget your bio for a second. I want to talk of how, I want to talk about how you got started in this first. You're a suicide expert. Mm -hmm. How does someone become a suicide expert? Well, one of the best ways to become a suicidal expert is to be suicidal yourself and, and, and get out of it or get through it and then find out what the heck happened to do that. So I, I, I do have a bunch of accomplishments, but I think my greatest professional accomplishment is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. You dropped out of medical school twice and still finished medical school. So I don't really know anyone who dropped out twice and finished well, for a show about quitting, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't drop out to see the world. I think I had untreated depression. And the second time I dropped out, the medical school wanted to kick me out because they were losing matching funds. So people who are listening may not know this, but uh, the tuition doesn't cover everything and it's matched by funds. And so every time someone takes a leave of absence, which is what I did, they lose money. So I dropped out once. Uh, because my mind just wasn't working. I was highlighting yeah. every book, and but I couldn't hold on to it. And I went out and you know, worked in blue-collar jobs, which I still romanticize because they were just so simple. Finish the day, you're done. You, know, you uh, clock out and you go home. You don't have to think about that's it. That's right, that's right. So then I go back, and within three months it comes back again. And so... How long were you out? I was out in a year, uh, out a year. So like, you spent a year, what kind of jobs? My favorite, well, I actually have some good jobs I like now, but something that I, that I utterly loved is I worked for a liquor distributing company in Boston, and I would go into the bars, and I'd go into the liquor stores, and I'd put up displays, and I'd put up the Heineken windmills, and I would bargain with the bartender, uh, if I give you a Heineken windmill for your 
den down uh, you know, at your home, would you keep it up for two months? And I'd be climbing ladders and I'd see rat skeletons. I loved it. I mean, I What just did you love about that? Oh. The independence? The... Oh, the independence. You know, I would go there. I'd have my crepe paper. I'd, I'd be creative. And I'd just get to know these people. And yeah. I love these people in South Boston and uh, all, all parts of Boston. And I'd run around in this van. And it was just uh, it was very different than being in medical school. Well, and one of the things that I like to say is the, the difference between a job and a career is you don't think about a job when you leave the job. When it's a career, it's all you think about. Right. You don't leave that in the office. You go home, you still answer emails, you still take calls, you still, you're on vacation and you're still, uh, let me just handle this one thing. And there are some people who have a job because they can't get their career to move. And there are some people who have a job because they prefer it. Mm -hmm. So I think I romanticize it because it was just so, so simple and so, I took the year off, I came back, and my mind worked for about three months. Yeah. And then I was back to highlighting every book, uh, you know, hoping that I could hold on to the information. And so I asked for another leave of absence, and I met with the head of the school who's about fundraising, uh, the dean of the school, the big guy, and I don't even remember the meeting, and uh, he referred me to the dean of students, and the dean of students cares about students. The dean of the school cares about funding. And I think I was really low. And I, and I came from a background, depression-age parents, and, and, and also my identity was you're only worth what you can do. If you can't do much, you're not worth much. If you're not productive, you're not worth much. And I think I'd reached that point where I wasn't worth much. So I was at a low point. Yeah. And, you know, and I love my parents, and they're both gone. I miss them. But it was that kind of conditional love. You know, you got to work, and if you're not working, you know, there's something wrong with you. And clearly there was. Um, and so I remember uh, the dean of students calls me in, and this was in Boston. He had an Irish Catholic, deep Boston accent, and uh, his name was uh, uh, William McNary. We called him Mac. And he calls me, and he says, Mac, Mac, this is Mac, Mac, this is Mac, <laughs> Mac. You better come in here. Get a letter from the dean. So I go in there, and I'm pretty low, and I read the letter from the dean. The dean says, I have met with Mr. Goulston, because I wasn't a doctor, uh, we talked about alternate careers, and uh, and I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw, which was a nice way of saying, look, let's cut our losses. He's right. asking, he's dropping out the second time. We keep losing money on this kid, and so I was low, and uh, and it's interesting because a certain miracle happened, which I think I've recreated with my suicidal patients because none of them killed themselves. I became a suicide specialist for 20 years. So I, I recreated this. Let's not gloss over that for a second. You were a suicide specialist for 20 years and none of your patients killed themselves. Right, right. But, a... I, but I recreated what you're going to hear now. So okay. I, so what happens is I go there and I, I said, what does the letter mean? He says, Mac, you've been kicked out. And I think I was so low that, uh, you know, I, 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 I didn't have the energy to say, they can't do that. I'm passing everything. I was yeah. too low. I was too low to be sarcastic and say, they can't do that to me. I mean, I was just low. And I just remember, and it's interesting, I'm not religious, but when he said that, I felt like it was a gunshot wound to my gut. And I know what that feels like. I had a perforated colon 10 years ago. And, and, and when he said, you've been kicked out, I went, And I started touching my cheekbones because I thought I was bleeding. So this gets a little bit, you know, yeah. kind of overtones, and it's a little bit like resurrectional. So I'm looking at my hands like this. So you're looking for the blood that isn't I'm there. I'm looking for the blood. It's tears. 
And so, you know, again, I'm there, I'm broken. And I'm used to sort of a conditional sort of love. What are you going to do? And so imagine if you don't think you're capable of anything, so you don't think you're worth anything. And he says to me, Mark, you didn't screw up because you're passing everything. I don't know how, but you are screwed up. But if you get unscrewed up, I think this school would be glad to give you a second chance. So suddenly I start crying with this compassion. What's he doing? And then he says, and so imagine hearing this when you come from a background where you're only as good as what you do. And he says, even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Oh, because you have goodness in you that we don't grade in medical school. What a good person. <sighs> yeah. And, uh, and you don't know how much the world needs that goodness. And you won't know it till you're 35. But you're going to make it till you're 35. Wow. And, and you deserve to be on this planet. And you're going to let me help you. And if he had said, you know, if I can help you, give me a call, I wouldn't have called him. I probably wouldn't be here today. And so there was something about someone reaching in just at the moment when you have really fallen apart. And they reach in and they reach underneath you. And they say, you don't have to do anything to not only deserve to be on this planet, but someone I'd be proud of. And I'm going to go to bat for you. And so he stood up against the whole medical school saying why they should give me another chance. And they did. But that combination of seeing goodness in me, seeing value in me that I couldn't see, seeing a future that I couldn't see, and then going to bat for me at his own risk, it changed everything. So I think that's what I've done with all the patients I've seen. Wow. Is that I, it, it, and what happened is, and I'll, and I'll share an anecdote, because in my book, Just Listen, is about how do you cause people to feel felt, which is much different than feeling understood. And a lot of it revolves around one incident, and I'll call this patient Nancy. She was the most suicidal patient I'd ever seen, and I didn't think I was helping her. She'd made several suicide attempts before I saw her. She was in the hospital five, six times over the years before I saw her. And I didn't think I was helping her, except she showed up and she hadn't made an attempt to have been hospitalized for about six months. She never made eye contact. So if you're me, this is Nancy. She wasn't catatonic, but... Yeah. And so I was working one weekend at one of the state hospitals. I was moonlighting. I was covering uh, for all the psychiatrists at Metropolitan State Hospital uh, outside of L.A., so sometimes you don't sleep for 36 hours when you're covering. And when you don't sleep for 36 hours, you know, if you've ever pulled an all-nighter and a half, you know, you get a little bit wigged up. Yeah. So I'm there with Nancy, and she, and she never made eye contact with me. And so I'm looking at her, and suddenly all the color in the room turns to black and white. So I'm looking out at the room, and it's black and white. And then suddenly I felt this cold chill. And I thought, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. And she, it's not rude because uh, she's not looking at me. And I did a neurologic exam on myself. I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm tapping my elbows, going like this, I'm going like this, and going like this, and yada, yada, yeah. yada. 
I love that you're also worried you're having like a stroke or a seizure and you're still like, but I don't want to be rude to this woman. Yeah, I don't want to be rude. So she's not looking. So she's like this. And so I'm tapping my knees and my elbows. And then I thought, I'm not having a stroke or a seizure. I'm all here. And then I had this crazy thought because I was sleep deprived. I am looking out at the world through her eyes. That's what she feels. What I'm looking at is what she feels. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted something out that if I wasn't sleep deprived, I probably wouldn't have. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. Wow. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to to get out of the pain. And I thought, did I think that or did I say that? I thought, don't put that in the medical record. You just gave her permission. Yeah. That's something that, like, go. I assume would go against all training. Yeah. Uh, And we can, that's a whole other show about training and evidence-based such and such and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, And so she looked at me for the first time, and I thought, she was going to, and she grabbed onto my eyes, like I'm grabbing onto your eyes. See, I can take yeah. your eyes anywhere I want to. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. I'm overdue. And I got a little nervous. And I said, what are you thinking? She just stared at me, and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. Wow. And then she smiled. And I, that's when I said to her, I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. And I was very fortunate because I didn't work for an institution. So instead of checking boxes, which is like a barrier between me and the patient, you know, and I'm checking boxes and the patient's suicidal, they're looking at they're looking at you saying, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. So I was able, so what happened is I learned to let go of the checking boxes and listen into people's eyes. And so I said to her, So we were just locked, like my eyes and your eyes are locked. And I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any advice or solutions or treatments unless you ask for them because you just won't follow through. She'd been through every kind of treatment. I said, would that be okay? And she had a look that said, keep talking. Yeah. And then I looked at her. I doubled down like I'm looking at you. And I said, here's what we're going to do instead. I'm going to find you wherever you are. And I'm going to keep you company there because you've been there too long at two in the morning. And then, you know, and then we'll figure it out from there. Would that be okay? And she just started to cry. Well, I mean, I would guess that you were the first person who, instead of saying to her, you need to come where we are, you were the first person to say, I'll come to you. Absolutely. In fact, you know, I'm part of a documentary called Stay Alive, an intimate conversation about suicide prevention. It's free uh, on YouTube. Uh, if you go to Stay Alive Video, um, it's also on Amazon Prime. And I interviewed the fellow who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, Kevin Hines, he, uh, and he survived. Uh, but I want to share this with listeners because if you have someone who's in a dark place, a teenager, and they don't want to talk about it, Here's an insight I got from a good friend of mine whose son unfortunately killed himself a year ago. And it was a fascinating insight. When you say to someone, how are you? And they say, great. They're usually good. But when they say, fine, they're not. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is very heavy stuff. And I want to come back to it. 
because I also have a question for you about how I've handled this in my past. And I'm curious to know whether or not I handled it correctly. So uh, this is Fowling Forward. Come back after the break. Joined here by Dr. Mark Goulston, talking about something very, very serious, which is suicide and suicide prevention. Um, this is something that, you know, I've I've been on the outskirts of for a little bit, um, not personally, but my writing, because I wrote a book um, about being bullied in high school and uh, basically getting through it. And the point of the book is whatever they bully you for, go get better at that thing because that way they can't touch you and you'll find your community. But whatever it is you whatever it is you're interested in, whether it is writing like me or you know or comedy or or whether it's something technical or whether it's you know being a doctor or whether it's Renaissance fairs, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is that you're interested in, you'll find your community. And I was in Kansas City last year and uh, touring in support of Josh Wolf. And so I go up. Josh is still on stage. I'm in the bar next to the club and this woman comes out of the showroom, which is not common because Josh is a beast. He's hilarious and that's who people came to see. This woman comes out of the showroom and tells me uh, that she was there to see me because her daughter had tried to kill herself and because of bullying. And she was in the hospital and someone had, you know, as a present for her and as a, oh, kind of try to cheer you up kind of thing, looked up books about bullying, found mine, saw that it was a comedy and not just a, here's why you don't be sad, and bought it for her. And allegedly, from the story the mother told me, it changed her perspective on things. And it very much moved me. And two different times, um, I've found out a fan was suicidal. And I don't mean in a, you know, every now and then, I get a lot of messages from people saying like, oh, I was depressed or sometimes, and people misuse that word a lot. You know, a lot of times what they mean is they went through something tough and they were sad. Um, you know, whether they lost a family member, went through a breakup, failed a test in school, whatever it was, I get a lot of those messages and they're very, very nice saying that like, you know, and your comedy got me through it. And it's a very, it's a, it's both a warm feeling as well as a lot of pressure. You know, I feel like the, I can't stop doing this. But two different times, I found out that a fan was suicidal. And what I did in both instances is I reached out to them directly and figured if they're a fan, they're gonna listen to me. I'll have a better chance of talking to them than somebody else. And what I did is I made them promise two things. I said, one, you're gonna to talk to a professional, whoever that professional is, whether it's a suicide hotline or whether it's a therapist, you're gonna promise me you're gonna to talk to a professional. And you're gonna approach three people in your life. I don't care if you say, oh, I don't have anyone that cares about me. First of all, if you say that, you're wrong. You're lying to yourself. You do have people that care about you but people don't walk around all the time being like, I care for you. They might just be someone in your life and they, they literally might be someone who is like the clerk at the store you go to all the time. 
and they just think that you're a fun customer, whoever it is. But you're going to go to three people who care about you, family members, friends, acquaintances, coworkers, doesn't matter. And you're going to be completely honest with them, and you're going to tell them what's going on. And if you promise me those two things, I have a show in your city coming up in X amount of months. Tickets are on me. You're going to come to the show. You're going to tell me how it went. And the reason I do that is my take on it as a completely untrained person is, A, I'm going to give them something to look forward to. I'm going to give them a reason to look toward the future. And while that's happening, I'm going to show them their support network is bigger than they think it is. And I'm going to have them talk to an actual professional in case one of the people who cares about them is a dummy <laughs> and screws something up somehow. So that has been my, I guess, unofficial suicide prevention kit, as it were. Break that down for me. Am I doing it right? Am I... I think it was perfect. I, you know, that, that we got into the issue about training. Uh, uh, because, see, what happened is that person felt genuine concern. You, you put the person into action. Uh, you, you backed it up with uh, go see a professional person. You gave them a reward. You also followed through and say, you're going to come and tell me how it worked out for you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you brought this up because recently I've turned a corner because the sadness of the world for 40 years has just been a lot. And I've started a movement, which uh, people can check out, and it's called hashtag WMYST. And I have the domains WMYST. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but what it stands for is what made you smile today? I saw this. I loved it. And I've been, and here's what you do, and this will make your day. You do this for a week, it will change your attitude. You do it for a month, it'll change your life. Go up to the people who have name tags, but they're faceless. You know, they have to wear a name tag because they have to be friendly. So that's the cashier at the fast food restaurant, the TSA person. If it's a cop, they have their last name. Yeah. But you go up to these people who are faceless, but they have a name tag. And when you see them, and I've been doing it every day, you see their name, and after they get rid of the responsibility checking you in, and I did this at uh, recently at Smart and Final, and I said, Jackie, my name is Mark. What made you smile today? And she paused, and suddenly she went from an appliance and a function with a name tag to a person, and she smiled, and she said, uh, uh, just getting up. And the woman next to us was intrigued by this. And I looked at her and I said, what about you? She said, the same thing. And then they both looked at me and they said, well, what about you? And now this is what I've been saying, because it's true. I looked at both of them. I said, the smile that I just put on your faces. Yeah. And I am telling you, it is contagious. I went back to my office I, and there was Jeff from Federal Express, an African-American. He's going up the elevator. I'm on a roll. And I said, Jeff, what? What made you smile today? He looked at me and he said, getting home safely. And I said, you're in the middle of your work day. How do you know you're going to get home safely? He says, it happens every day. I said, I think it's going to happen today. <laughs> and then he gets out of the elevator and he stops. He looks at me and he said, what about you? And I said, meeting you, man. And I am telling you, here's why it works. Yeah. It, it takes the invisible people out of the world 
who are nobodies and you make them somebody and you get out of your self-involvement because a lot of people who are depressed will say, I deserve to be depressed because all I think about is myself. It gets you out of yourself. Yeah. And I will tell you, it's amazing how little something like that can do. Uh, there's a talk I'm giving, which I hope to give as a TEDx, and, and the ending is I, uh, there was a young man named Rahul from uh, India, and he wrote me about some issue he was going through, and I wrote him back, and I said, Rahul, what made you smile today? And he said, um, no one as famous as you has ever written my name. That's so cool. And I keep touching the email that you sent with my finger. Oh, my God. That's adorable. Oh. So, um, and it's interesting because, I, you know, I also, if you go to my LinkedIn profile, it says scaling compassion, you know, yeah. humanizing the world one conversation at a time. And so I, I think it's a way of giving compassion to the people who often live in quiet desperation. They have a name tag, but they're faceless. And and I think when you pause and you get out of your own self and you just say that, I'm telling you, you do it every day, once a day, it'll change your outlook. I, first of all, a lot of the people who, you know, and I joked with, uh, with Drew Lynch on the last episode, you know, Drew's a comic and a buddy of mine, and he started as a door guy at a club. And I joked around about like, oh, yeah, that must have been where I ignored you for the first time. And I kidded around with him, but part of it's true, part of it's not. Because, you know, I've become friends with some of the door guys from comedy clubs, and then there's so much turnover that at a certain point, I just kind of got exhausted. And I was like, well, you know, I'm here once every three months, and by then you might not be here anymore, and it's, you know, and so a lot of times I don't get to know the people. But I also was that person. You know, I started out as a guy who answered phones at a chicken place. You know, I started out as as someone who, I remember one job where my job was to take a, it was to show that these, uh, oven knobs were defective and we were to take uh, scotch tape and like tape against it and show the paint would come off hmm. and just do that for eight hours in a day. Just put tape on a knob, tape on a knob, tape on a knob. We've all had these jobs. Some of us still do. Some of us do by choice because of the romanticized nature of actually being able to go home after you're done taping the knobs. But I look at this and on the surface, I go, this is wonderful advice, and I can't wait to do this. And then part of me recognizes I'm a curmudgeon. I enjoy keeping to myself. I can't stand the person in front of me at the rental car line who won't shut up because I just want to get my car and go, and they're busy having this extra 10-minute conversation with this person they're never going to see again. And I go, oh, to, to what end? Why are they doing this? If everybody does this, this line's going to take an hour. And it's hard for me to, you know, and I'm trying to be honest as possible with this. How do I rectify that part of myself? The part of myself that does care about the person and say, no, you don't need to kill yourself. And then there's the part of me that is just like, shut up, move on. I have things to do. Where do you... Well, something I've discovered, and in fact, if you check out, I, uh, I'm Jewish and I gave a sermon at a church. Okay. And if you check, if you uh, search 
of goodness and mercy. That's my sermon, Goulston, of goodness and mercy. And something that I've discovered, which has really set me free in the last six months, is there's something called our shadow. Our shadow is the dark parts of our personality that we don't want to admit are there. And we use a lot of energy to try to deny that they're there because if they're there, then we get filled with shame. And everybody has a shadow. And what I realized is that for many years, I never felt good enough. And I thought it was about money and performance. But even when I had money and I performed, I still didn't feel good enough. And what I realized is I didn't feel good enough because I, at my core, I felt I lacked goodness because I had these shadowy things that I don't act on, I'm not conscious of. People will say, that's not you at all. What's my shadow? I keep, I, I keep it you know, away. But I can be petty. I can be jealous. I'm sure I, I think I have a chip on my sh- both shoulders. And, but when I realize that everybody has a shadow, as long as you don't act on it, you're good to go. Yeah. And it's been so freeing. So what you're saying is uh, they're not irreconcilable. You have a shadow. There's that part of your personality. And the more that you can accept these shadowy parts of yourself, as long as you don't act on them, it frees up so much energy because if you're so busy feeling guilty and ashamed, oh, I'm so jealous, oh, my best friend is doing better than me, and, and I'm, uh, I'm whining, what about me, oh, I'm a terrible friend, everybody has the shadow. And it can be so freeing. Do you ever get anybody who has an adverse reaction to being asked what made them smile? Do you ever get anybody... Well, is, I, I try to be. Well, I try to be a little bit selective. Meaning, if someone's really rushed, and I see that they're anxious, and they're just trying to get through things, it, it's actually fairly disruptive because people aren't used to being asked that. Yeah. So I just don't do it to anyone. You know, like I, I, I would be selective about doing it. I mean, I do give money to the homeless, but you know, but even with some of them, if I, I get a feeling I can get away with it, you know, like they're enjoying the day, they're out there, and I'll say, you know, you know what's your name? Uh, it's also important to ask the homeless their name. Yeah. What's your name? Uh, and and it takes them away from being invisible. Uh, but that's a good icebreaker. When you say, what's your name, and someone gives you their name, it, it helps lead into it. Uh, and then I think it's good to say your name because that levels the playing field. Uh, but I, I do sort of check it out. If someone's in a rush, I can just yeah. see they're just trying to get through something. But it is, I am telling you, it's game-changing. That is interesting. Let me ask you, what made you smile today? What made me smile today? I just smiled at that. Um, what made me smile today? I, I'm i a hobby carpenter, and I finished a piece I've been working on for a long time that I had screwed up a couple of times and had to kind of Frankenstein monster it. Mm. And I finally put the finishing touches on it. Mm. I still got to figure out a U-Haul because it's for a friend, so I still got to figure out a U-Haul and deliver it. But I, it, this thing just wouldn't end, and I finished it, and I was very happy. About and you're that. reliving it, so you're smiling, so you're getting a second hit. Yeah, because I can just picture it in your mind's eye. I finished that sucker. Yeah, you know, you know, I was gonna let, and you finished it, and so you're sharing it with me. Yeah, I'm getting out of myself because I'm just. I'm I'm just uh, marinating myself in that. And, yeah, and we have a bromance. What do you I, want? <laughs> <laughs> We'd be in a buddy cop film now. Um, do you, what do you prefer, Mark, Doctor Goldstein? What do you, good. Mark? Mark? Is good. Um, this is a this has been exactly what I wanted it to be, which is a very different episode than what we're used to doing. But I think it's something that's important, 
And there are a lot of lessons to be learned here. One, that we all do have a shadow. Um, two, and this is one I never thought of before, but the idea of when when someone is in a dark place, you don't need to bring them to the light as much as you need to extend yourself to where they are. Yeah, and there's a tip that I was in the middle of. I got to give it. So if you're yeah. worried about someone, uh, there's something that we've developed over the years, um, and it's called interventional empathy. So it's a way of going right into it and touching it. And part of interventional empathy is well, uh, one of the tools is the seven words. So if you're with someone who says, I'm fine, I don't want to talk about it, you know, a lot of what parents will do, oh, okay, you know, you might feel better, and they back off. Uh, but, the, but, but the point is, even if they push back, you'd say, yeah, I, I know you don't want to talk about it, but seven words. And they're going to look at you like, what the F? I don't want to talk. Yeah. And they're going to say, what? Yeah, seven words. And then they're going to lean in because they're both angry and curious. And then you use your FM NPR voice as opposed to AM voice, and you invite them uh, to get off their chest. And so I'll use that. You could say, and uh, uh, you'd say, yeah, seven words. Hurt, afraid, angry, ashamed, alone, lonely, tired. Pick one. And when you say that to people who are depressed and suicidal, and it's in the documentary, uh, yeah. Stay Alive, Kevin Hines, uh, when I say that to him, and this has happened over the years, he tilts his head, smiles, and he says, all of them. Yeah. But then you're in the conversation. Good. Pick one and tell me about it. Tell me about the worst one at 2.30 in the morning. But can you see you're pulling it out of them? Yeah. And that's different than checking boxes. Like, have you ever felt angry? You know, where there's a barrier. Yeah. So so uh, what you're doing is you're assuming they're, they've felt one of those. And when you tee it up that way and they say the word, you're draining you're draining pus out of the dark night of the soul. Yeah, I mean, who hasn't felt one of those? And I mean, and that is, it's a way to be relatable. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, there's a lot more to unpack here, um, but we're gonna we're gonna put a pin in this, and I want people to go. I want people to come to you, <laughs> as it were. Well, I, I, um, I've retired. I, I I help one to many now. I, I speak at uh, organizations or. Uh, right, you're retired, but I mean, but people listen to this that have companies and have, you know, have conventions and et cetera, et cetera. So, and also people should read your book. I mean, your book isn't retired. Your book just came out in paperback. Your book is is mm -hmm. reprinting over and over again because it's so popular. Just listen. Yeah. It's, so, it's 23 languages now, so, so it's up oh, a little bit. Oh, yeah. we got to fix this Wikipedia. So just listen, 23 different languages. That's amazing. Um, Mark, if people do want to learn more about you, get in touch, et cetera, where do they go? We well, can go to markgoulston.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com. Something that also that you can help with, uh, I have 550,000 Twitter followers, and I keep permanently pinned on my Twitter account, at Mark Goulston. Have you ever known anyone in your community or wherever that died by suicide? It has 2.5 million impressions, 1,500 comments, and it's saving lives because people just list all the people they know who've killed themselves. It is heart-wrenching, Yeah. but it helps people feel less alone. And then I occasionally visit and I say, you know, talk to people we haven't heard from. Just, just see how they're doing. 
So if you go to my Twitter page and you can share that, uh, that would uh, that'd be, I, w- I would like that very much, at Mark Goulston. And what I would uh, ask of you, uh, for those of you who are viewing this on YouTube uh, or any listening or on any player that has a comment section, uh, what made you smile today? If you could put that in the comments, uh, that would be amazing. I'll try to reply to as many of them as I can. And, you know, share this share this with somebody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.